Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. Uh, today, in the shadow of things that have happened and the, the death of, of George Floyd, first of all, we have spent 18 years together, so you know I do not preach the news cycle. <laughs> Culture does that. I think we're responsible for preaching the constancy of the gospel uh, in, in the midst. In the, you know, that they can push up against, they being the world outside or us, we can push up against it, we can bang up against it, but it won't move. It's just right there. I believe the notion of standing in the middle is what we're called to do in the church of Jesus Christ. If we do that effectively, You will find yourself being shot at typically by extremes and polarized positions in culture because we don't retreat to the comfortability of one place, whether that's nationalism or politics. If you are here for the first time, I need to just try and neutralize the fact and remind everyone that this place right here is, I believe, is sacred. The teaching platform, the pulpit, the table, whatever we call it. I am a Marine, Um, I am conservative in life and values, but please everyone look at me. I've said this little speech a hundred times, that today, right now, if there was evil aggression against this nation that threatened your life, I would take up arms or do whatever to defend that. I think, I do think in the big picture, so I don't have a problem with that, but and, and remember, you know, I'm a special ops, second force recon, Marine Corps guy. I'm that guy. But I look people and have for 40 years pastors and people in the face that would dare to take any flag of nationalism and drape it over the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't do that. You miss the power of the kingdom if you suppose that any one nation owns it. And see, every time I say that, I do stand in the middle because people say, that's right. It's not, you know, the United States, it's Israel. Listen, even Israel in Acts 1, went, listen, when they stood up and said, listen, Jesus, it's, it's now the time that you're going to return the kingdom and the power to Israel? And he goes, no, absolutely not. You've missed the point. That, 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 I want you to go wait for this day, by the way, Pentecost in, in, in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That suddenly the kingdom of God was not nationalistic. And by the way, as often as we quote this Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, then we'll hear from heaven and hear the land. You see that in memes all over the internet, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it may be. Please hear me and write, pray for our nation. Beloved, there's a term called theocracy, and that is a governmental construct where God is the, the center. That ended with Jerusalem, and it ended at the de- excuse me, with Israel of the Old Covenant, and it ended at the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the inauguration of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's not a theocracy. People can say, I need our nation to get back to being that nation, that godly nation it once was. And I always ask, when? When was it? When we came here, and under decree, took it away from American 
Indians and natives, is that the one? Is it the one, the godly nation, the one where we enslaved people of a different color for however long? Is that the one? We are required to ask the questions. Now, please hear me. We live in East Tennessee. Today, if you go home and Google search census information for Sevier County, Tennessee, you will find that we live in an area where 95.3% Caucasian. That's down about 2% from when I moved here 18 years ago. Where I came from in southwest Florida, it was more culturally diverse, and accordingly, our church reflected the culture. We probably had 40% of various ethnicity and, and skin colors other than white. I love that. I love the diversity. When I moved here, I read the census. I told Elder Rick Maples, are you here today, Rick? There you are. I told Rick when we were discussing, I said, I don't have any idea why God is directing us here, but I know he is. Because sort of in my heart of hearts, I'm a black man on the inside. I'm a short white guy that I just love diversity of culture. I, I, I love the music, the, wor- the, co- the, the worship influences, the, com- I lo- the comedy. I love it all. I, I, I just love it. So I've never been quite sure... But I want you to be clear that I didn't come here this morning to beat you up. I didn't come here because this congregation has always been consistently loving, gracious. I do not doubt that if I polled and interviewed you, I would find some people who are still wrestling with prejudice. Unscripted. You know who the primary mouthpiece on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost was? It was Peter. Do you know the words that he quoted? Here was part of my sermon for today, that when the Holy Spirit shows up, he says, now young men will have visions, old men will have dreams, Uh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your bond slaves. There's three groups mentioned there. When the Holy Spirit blows into the room, suddenly the walls between generations are shattered. Hear me, it is no longer you're young and cool, you're old and not, but it says in this new eschaton and economy of the kingdom that young people will never be too young to have a vision and old people will never be too old to have a dream. That in the kingdom of God, in a Pentecostal church, it's a place where the visions of the young matter and the dreams of the old still count. And those walls aren't in between. And then he mentions sons and daughters. That not only is it generation, but gender. In the kingdom of God, your function is not defined by gender. I don't believe it becomes unisex and erases the distinction or uniqueness of gender. The Bible doesn't do that. But in terms of function in the kingdom of God, if he gives my wife a spiritual gift of administration or of pastor, it doesn't make any difference. We have lived through 40 years and early on a resistance to the fact In my day and time, that she would be seen or referred to as a pastor early on. Well, she can't speak to men. And we dealt with all those passages and on and on and on. But in the economy of the kingdom, and here is that sermon, it was the day of the comeback of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was back in the house. When the Holy Spirit is in the house, there's no walls in generation. Hear me. When the Holy Spirit in the house, you're not defined by gender. And the last thing is genetics. So there's three G words. There's your sermon. 
Generation, gender, and genetics. Bond slaves. It doesn't make uh, whatever, wherever they may come from, whatever. Did you know Peter was the one saying that? Did you know 11 years later in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, he has a, a, a vision of an angel or an angel appears to him. He says, send for Peter, Acts chapter 11. Peter's out sunbathing on the rooftop. Middle of the day, he wasn't really, that's just my version of it, but he was on the roof. God gives him a vision of a, a sheet dropping down with every type of creature, and it was about the Old Testament law. I don't have time to unpack it. But he says, here's what I want you to do, blah, blah, blah. And he says, never, Lord, I'm not unclean, I obey the law. But he is essentially saying, I want you to go preach to the Gentiles. No, their skin's the wrong color, and they're not part of the kingdom. 11 years after he declared so I, that there is no generation, gender, or genetics, he said it, he declared it. Isn't it wonderful thing that God can fill our mouth and hearts with promises of the Spirit that we can declare that we don't even comprehend? 11, isn't it wonderful to know that you have issues, not me? I'm perfect, that's my wife. That you're a Pentecostal people and you have issues just like Peter did for 11 years. And it was like, oh, 11 years, guys? What did he preach in between? Well, you get to hear the gospel. Sorry, your skin's the wrong color. You're out. 11 years. I didn't come, I'm, I promise you, I'm not here to beat you up or beat you down. I'm here to declare the word of God I've believed forever. It's just in the, the rambling, and I may have should, have should have taught on it more, but can I just give you some scripture and then speak for a couple of minutes and say amen, okay? Um, if, if there is a sort of life, one of many life-defining references, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Amanda, you know, I don't even know if I sent you the rest of the verses of the scripture, but watch how instant in season and out of season she is. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Would you look at the scripture as screen as soon as that pops up there? Okay, you see that? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Here it comes. And what does the Lord require of you but to, there's three things, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, there is a sermon there that really, you know, three parts we can unpack and take. I just want to say this much. The word love kindness, if you're reading another, it says loving kindness. It's one of two Hebrew words for mercy. Let me pause right there and mention mercy. Around here, for a decade, as a matter of fact, a, a, a recording called Mercy Speaks the entirety of the proceeds of that project that was done here was to be able to generate money, and it did. It generated about $50,000 to build replacement homes. Mercy Speaks was the force of no. The, the, the functional definition of mercy here as we come into the New Testament is this. The force of God refusing to join me in any identity that sin would give me. That's the sort of theological statement. The boiled down version of that using other terms, and again, there is... Biblical defense of this. It's not just cool language. Here it comes. The force of God refusing to join me in any opinion of me above his opinion of me. Why? 
because I believe in, in, in people, I believe, God believes in mankind being fully human. What does, look at me, what does fully human mean? That means fully animated by the creator. That's fully human. That's the gospel that I preach. That's what I, and as much as possible, informed by scripture. Fully human, fully animated by God. But here's a key attribute of the kingdom of God that we are voices of mercy. We're voices that say no. We're voice that stands in the middle and says no. Um, I, I, um, okay, I'll just stop right there. Haggai chapter 2, one of the minor prophets. He's speaking of a time that was to come ahead. At this point, the Solomon's temple had been destroyed. They were rebuilding the temple, and the new temple was far less ornate. It didn't have the gold and the furnishings and all of the fine trappings. And they, one section said they, when they saw that the temple was so far beneath what had been, they were depressed. One of the minor prophets begins to speak to it here, and he says, verse 5, chapter 2, he says, As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Again, a wonderful sermon there, talking about the Spirit of God pointing to Pentecost about the ability of the Spirit of God to go with us to a place of promise and lead us past our fears. It's right there. Um, Verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Uh, Hebrews repeats this passage of Scripture. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all of the nations. What happens? When the nations are shaken, they will come with the wealth of all the nations and will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Everyone look at me, please. The, the problem was they were saying this is not nearly as ornate, and the reference was we don't have the gold and the silver. We don't have the gold and silver to declare the glory of the Lord. But then the minor prophet, he speaks and he says, I want you to understand irrespective of whatever this looks like. The glory of, the Lord, the la- of this house will be far greater than the former, the latter glory. Why? Because in that house, in all of its wonderful ornate decoration, the presence of the Lord came in a mist or in a fog. Go read Second Chronicles 5. Well, the glory of the Lord filled the temple at dedication. But in this temple, about 400 years later, it wouldn't be a mist or a fog or a, or a cloud it would be literally God in the flesh who would walk into the temple. I want us to get that, God in the flesh. Now watch what it says here. Do you see in verse 7 it says, I will shake the nations and they will come with the wealth. Here's another language study. Look in your Bibles, Google search it, whatever. You will see that this word is often, most often translated, Um, desire, precious, pleasant, desire. One One translation translation. does render it. My mentor, Jack Hayford, first called this to my attention about 30 years ago. Watch. I will shake the nations, and they will come with their desires. See, it's it's sort of a metaphor because what people typically desire the most is what? To be able to exist in peace, and that is largely attached to economy or how much money we have. He says they're going to bring their wealth, but the actual translation is they're going to bring their desires. And he said that they'll bring their wealth, and he says they're going to come in. God says, I want you to know that the whole 
gold and silver that you're concerned about, that's all mine. He says it right there. It's all mine. But the glory that we're talking about that's about to come won't be attenuated by gold and silver. It'll be be something by another world. It'll be impossible for you to even fathom that God would come and walk in the flesh. The Jews never could of that day, never could comprehend the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. It was just absolutely offensive. Paul would write about that after the fact. John chapter 2, let's fast forward about four or 500 years. Now, Jesus is here. This will be our first recorded notion of him actually entering the temple. Remember, the glory, these years later, in John chapter 2, the temple we're about to read in is the one that Haggai, read about, was the one that Haggai was describing. He says, the glory of the latter days will be greater than the former. Jesus comes walking in, watch what happens, okay, here we go. He's beginning his ministry. By the way, in John chapter 1, he's just finished selecting the disciples, including Peter. That's an important notion. You can read John chapter 1. There's the wedding at Cana. But the first act of public ministry is right here where he marches into the temple. Before he begins anything else, he marches into the temple. Here we go. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Now, there's a reason for his fixation on this is the sort of purveyors in the temple. See, people would come from far away and they wouldn't have animals to sacrifice. So they would sell them an animal, but they actually never would sacrifice it. They would sell it and resell it and resell it. And it was just the biggest deception in the world. And you can do your own study on that. Go Google it, whatever, and you'll see that that's the backdrop to this story. They were being deceived. They were being deceived as to what might actually be theirs as they come into the presence of the Lord. And watch this this economic colloquialism. God was essentially saying, my people are getting ripped off. In another passage, he said, you've made it a robber's den. And he would point back to the language of the last book of the Old Testament. You've made it a robber's den, but he's about to fix the economy of this situation. Verse 14 again, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. (laughs) Get this picture. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, quote, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, the actual language in here, he's he's saying there are marketplaces in the streets that you can go to. My father's house will never be a place of business as usual. My father's house will never be a place where the economy of thought, see, when I use the word economy, I'm not just referring to dollars and cents. I'm returning to our whole conceptual value system. And Heavenly Father, please help me communicate this right. It has to do with a whole economy of thinking. And so Jesus comes in and says, look, the business that goes on out there, it will never come in here. And he starts ministry by coming into the house and the temple of God, and he seeks to make a statement there that rightness and righteousness is going to start right here. Peter is watching. I believe, by the way, here's a fun thing. If you read the book of Peter, 
I have, all, for years, there's several things I want to do a series on. I told you a few minutes ago, I want to do a series entitled Whatever. I want to do a series on the Ten Commandments called Ten, Ten Prohibitions to Worship, because that's what it stops us from our worth from being found in God. I, I want to do a series on, on the book of Peter and gain the little glimpses of where he's probably pointing back when he would write 35 years later as an old man, uh, older man, and he would write of his experiences with Jesus. Here's one. He says, be sober, be on the alert, on the alert. That actually means stay awake. <clears throat> I would suppose if I were rewriting that, I would say, man, I was there in Gethsemane that night when there were so many things that I wish I hadn't missed, but I fell asleep three times. So be on the alert, be sober, because moments and opportunity for you to see things that God's doing will come at a moment when you're not aware. So be alert, be aware, be on the watch. Don't fall asleep. It happened to me. I don't want it to happen to you. I love that. See, I love that this is the guy, uh, and those of you, you can go online or you can just send me a text message or or an email uh, about Eclipse. When Jesus would say to Peter in the night that he was betrayed, he says, Peter, you're going to fail. That word means eclipse. It means passing darkness. It's used in the next chapter on the cross where the sun was blocked and there was an eclipse. So Peter was a guy who understood what it meant to experience darkness after he had been called out of it. Remember, God called him away from being a fisherman to say, I want you to be a fisher of men and not a fisher of fish. And I called you that, but Peter's standing in the shadow of this eclipse in darkness thinking, oh man, I I am just a person of darkness. I'm going to go back to my last secure point of identity. Did you know we do that when we fail? All of us do it. When we fail, we're going to retreat back to the last place. Well, at least I was doing this right. It's clear that I won't be able to go forward and live and promise and be the man or woman of God or whatever, but at least, you know, this is solid. God finds him in his retreat and walking into the shadow of that darkness. And see, it says that First Peter chapter 2, he says, don't you know that you were a people who were not a people? He said, you weren't even counted, but now you are a people who are a people. He says, God has claimed you. And he says, you're a, 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 a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, that you should show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, and he will call you out of darkness again and again, because I wandered back into darkness more time after time and found myself in the eclipse and the shadow of that. But I'm telling you, there's a God that when he calls you out of it, that's who you are. And you may experience failure for a moment, but he's called you out of darkness to show forth the excellencies of him. So I want to tell you as an ambassador of the eclipse that there is no darkness that will befall you that will ever claim you again. So I want to to preach that series. But he does it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. What if he's thinking back to that day in John chapter 2 when he's fresh off the boat, if you will, and he's standing on the edge in the very first public ministry that's going on. What if he reflects back on that? You want to hear verse 17? Sure you do. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is a verse about the end times. Theologians call it eschatology or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. The principle here is the statement. Watch. If you don't get anything else, get this next statement. I believe it's here that Peter is reflecting back 
on what Jesus did, and maybe now he's gotten some depth perception on it because he's saying this. Please look. You see, we are the people of the way. That's what the word, the New Testament calls us. We know the way. We know the truth. We know the life. Everyone look at the preacher, please. We have the answer. We have the answer. And so Jesus said, as he went into the temple, he said, before I begin telling people what the answer is, I've got to fix a problem. And the problem is there's things wrong in the house of God. Forty years later, Peter writes, and he says, I I want you to. I want to tell you that what, what we are those who preach the message of the gospel and preach the hope, and we preach grace and mercy. He's already written about that in there, but he said, "I want to tell you who we are. We're people who create our own self-moderating, self-imposed self-examination. And by the time the world ever shows up at our door with its wealth or its desires, what they will see about us if they say, well." What are you doing about this as a church? Go ahead and ask your questions because for every one you've asked, we've already asked ourselves 10. We didn't wait for you to show up to examine us. We didn't wait for you to show up to begin to judge us. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. I want to say to us, New Hope, I didn't come to beat you up or beat us up. I came just to make the declaration that as we stand in the shadow of this, please understand, and Lord, give me the ability to break this down. What happens when the world comes with its wealth and its desire? Watch. Please listen. Please get this. Please, please, please. Because I'm not sure I can explain it well. So I need your extra attention to help me with my inability in communication. Because it's sort of abstract. It is saying the world is going to come to our house of worship with all of their value system, everything that informs their wealth and worth. They're going to bring it in. They're going to come in with sociological issue agenda. They're going to come in with political issues. They're going to come in with economic issues. They're going to come in with, with whatever issues, and they're going to bring their value system and how they determine worth. They're going to bring it to the house of the Lord. And God says, listen, I want you to know all the stuff that they bring, whatever, I don't have a problem with that. Let him bring it. Remember, Haggai used the term silver and gold. But he says at the end of the day, it's not their silver and gold that will define the worth and value of what happens in the house of the Lord. But it is the glory and presence of God in the house of God that informs their worth. But here's the tragedy. What happens if they come to the house of the Lord and they find out, watch, they find out that our worth is informed by the same thing that informs their worth. Hear me? I'm not done. What if they come to the house of the Lord and they find out that our worship is informed by a political value system, by sociological constructs, by economic, uh, national economics and whatever, that our value system is informed that way? What would God do? He says, if you bring the cash from the world outside and the world system outside, I wish I had a table right here that I could just walk up and violently flip. And God said, I want to come into that house. So the question for us today, what do we do? Pastor Tom, we live in East Tennessee. We're nice people. We don't hate anybody. We didn't kill George Floyd this week. We didn't stand on the edge of the crowd and watch. Why are you beating us up? For the fifth time, I want to say, I'm not beating us up. I'm simply making a declaration about who we are, who the church must be. And we don't have the easy opportunity of retreating to the answers that are found beyond that wall. We don't have the easy answer of just saying, I'm going to take a political position. I'm going to take a sociological idealism. Because see, in the world, here's the real problem. 
ever since the last day in Eden. Please listen again. Mankind didn't leave the garden without a purpose. Finish reading chapter 3. He left the garden without a relationship with the purpose giver. Listen, read chapter 3. Man didn't leave the garden without knowledge. He left the garden because the adversary says, you know, you can know. Now we know. But the problem is we have knowledge and we don't know the knower. We left the Garden of Eden with knowledge, but without the relationship with the knower. And we stand today in culture that constantly will tell us, listen, the emancipation of mankind, the full activation of the worth and possibility. They use our language. By any other estimation, that is the word redeem. You've heard me say a hundred times, you redeem a coupon at a store. Not because of the face value of the ink or the paper, but because of the intrinsic value that's sewn into it that Walmart put their name on it and said, when you bring it here, I can give you full worth. Like fashion, God says, I created every human being and I stamped my image on their soul. And the only way they can be brought to full value and redeemed is to bring it to economic central of the kingdom of God, the house of God, in the glory of God. Only then will you be animated to the full worth and value but listen me listen culture says we can offer you redemption but you don't have to have a relationship with a redeemer and that is the tragedy and shortfalling and to every one of those situations that said you can have a knowledge without the knower you can have purpose without the purpose giver you can have redemption without a redeemer god says forget all of that they're going to, at the end, they're going to still come back right here and they're going to bring every worth and every sense of value they bring to bear. They're going to bring it and they're going to discover true worth and value and that is the glory of God. Luke chapter 10, I'll end right here. Jesus replied and said, verse 30, I didn't give you this one either, Amanda. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him, went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road. Okay, now now watch what he's about to mention, Samaritan. Most of you know the story of the good Samaritan. This is it. I don't ever know if I've taught on it pointedly, only in in passing like I'm doing today. It says they, uh, a chief priest was going down the road. Watch what happened. Let me go up here on the stage so you can see me. Chief priest was, was going down the road. <clears throat> that is, the, you know, clearly the sort of primary religious person of the day. By, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him on the road, he uh, said, look at the words. He passed by on the other side. Okay? Let's keep going. Likewise, a Levite also, again, significant person uh, uh, who was sort of like a, uh, a second-tier priesthood in the temple and worship system. When he came to the place and saw him on the road, and he goes, it says he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, but a Samaritan. Now, remember, I, I, years been a while since we've talked about Samaritans. They were looked down upon by the Jewish people. They were looked down upon by the Jewish people because they were people of the remnant In other words, when everybody was deported to like Babylon, Persia, and all of those years of deportation before they returned, there were a certain group of the the Jewish people who remained. It was the Samaritans. And they intermingled with those Gentile 
marauders that came through. So they sort of cross-pollinated. So when the people, when the Jewish people came back, they said, you guys are, you're trash. And so there was a horrible attitude towards Samaritans, okay? But a Samaritan was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Pretty sure that's the same word for mercy we're about to see. I didn't check it, but Eliao, here it goes. And came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put, on his, put him on his own beast. He put him in his car, if you will, and brought him to an inn, took care of him. On the next day, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you need to spend when I return, I'll repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one he was at inquiring of, said, the one who showed mercy. Everybody say mercy. I'm going to end right here. The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. <clears throat> you see, we've learned around here that mercy is the say no of God. Remember that? The blind man cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. Go read the 75 times it shows up in the New Testament. See, their primary point of identity and the prevailing opinion about these guys is they were blind men. Jesus stopped and healed him. What happened? He changed their identity and he changed opinion about them. When Jesus walked away, they couldn't say, and the three blind, well, they're not blind anymore. So what do we call you now? Paul, uh, Peter, Paul would speak of Jesus. He says, I was a murderer, a blasphemer. I did a whole bad, a lot of bad stuff. And he said, but I want to tell you that God came along and he had a different opinion and God great in his mercy. Say it. God great in his say no. Did you know that say no works in our life? But we are people of the say no. That's who we are. You see, the Samaritan looked across and his first impulse, it's clear from the story, was to likely do because he was the last one inclined to help a Jew, him being a Samaritan, but the first two Jewish people wouldn't even help the, the Jew themselves. So the Samaritan guy looked, what did he do? He said no to his first impulse. Mercy towards, listen to me, mercy towards that guy was not just saying no to him being left alone. There was a mercy at work in him before there was mercy through him. Because the mercy through him couldn't have happened if there was not mercy at work in him. The first say no he had to encounter that Jesus is pointing out is there was another say no going on inside. Because the first impulse was, there's no way I'm getting involved in this business. It's very messy. I don't know who may be lying around. So the first say no he had to do was internally say, no, I'm not just going to walk away and do nothing. Mercy was at first work in him before it was at work through him. And then he went and he said, no, I'm not going to leave you here. No, I refuse to leave you. You see, one of the definitions of mercy, please listen. I've got about six or seven that I write in, in, a, in a stack so you can sort of see them and look down through the transparent pages and see them. And here's another one. Mercy is the force of God refusing to leave us unaffected by grace. I want to say it again because that's theological and biblical. I can preach that to death. Mercy is the force of God saying, I, will, I refuse to leave you unaffected by my grace. In like fashion, test those definitions. He comes by and he says, I, I refuse to leave you unaffected by my presence here. I have to leap over my own prohibitions, my own prejudices, and I'm going to reach out to you. So what do we do, Pastor Tom? I mean, you want me to go find a black man and hug him this week? Would that fix everything? I'm not being a snotwad, and I realize that this is online, and I realize it'll be played, and somebody will be excerpting that statement. 
I don't know what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to do first what the Good Samaritan did and examine mercy at work in, in me. That's where it starts. Lord, is there something I need to say no to inside? Is there some value I've brought into the kingdom? In other words, I, I can preach to you. Uh, by the way, those words used, uh, mishpat, for, uh, from, uh, from um, uh, Micah uh, that I quoted, that uh, to, to, do go- to do good, love kindness, uh, love, to, do, to do good and love mercy. Um, that doesn't mean... It doesn't mean just stop the evil. There's two sides to that coin. And it's, you can go Google this stuff. It's not original. I'm not making it up. That mercy doesn't just say that's bad. Mercy says, I'm going to do what I can to fix it. Mercy pushes us across. So right now we're all afraid to speak, to act, or whatever because it's wrong. I get involved in these conversations. I pick up the phone I have in the last several days. I, I administrate, as I've told you, a couple of sites with three or 4,000 pastors. I've engaged in conversations with people of color, and they're just reaching out in their pain. And very often, one of them, as it happened to me this week, how can, you know, you're the wrong color to even speak to it. And so you can't be offended by that because they're speaking out of their pain. So what I do is reach back, and I said, then please tell me. How can we have this conversation? How can we as brothers, these are other pastors, how can we as brothers begin to have a conversation that trumps the value systems of the world being brought in here, a value system that is supposed to have been erased by Pentecost? A value system that says, I won't tell you your opinion is not legitimate on the basis of your color. A value system that says, we stand together. Okay, so I'm going to end right here. This is a song I don't sing to you a lot anymore, but... Hey, does anybody have a guitar pick I can borrow? I forgot mine. I think there may be one in that case of the guitar that doesn't work. Here's where we'll end. We'll be over after this, so worship team, uh, be somewhere near so you can come and rescue me. You have one over there? Awesome. Sabre, you absolutely rescued me today. I love that. Now, this is already on Jonathan, and it works. And yeah, you guys be ready to come out after this because, see, this song I'm already going to tell you, it's not one, okay, had to pull out the guitar. Are you going to play with me? I'd love for you to. I didn't know if you know this song. Hold on, my microphone just fell off. I'm having, I'm having issues. Hmm? No, just move that table. I'm okay. I think they can see me. And so I've had to, uh, I wrote this song on a guitar and then I quit playing the guitar again for the last how many ever years, so sort of ignore that. Um, this is not a song that will make you stand to your feet and cheer and worship, so I'm not expecting that. So I, Dan, I need you to have a song that will actually do that after I sing a song that could be entitled uh, Musical Awkwardness. I wrote this 10 years ago. Uh, Went in the studio, did a little demo of it, and it was right at the time we were still deeply involved in the Build a City initiative in Cambodia. And we were literally building 100 homes to move people out of the dump and change their circumstances. The project was entitled Mercy Speaks. I wrote this one shortly after it was done because I, I went looking and, and watching people and watching people and watching responses and I was frustrated that more people weren't involved. So let me see. Okay. Hey, Jared, are you here? Okay. There we go. Help a brother out. Okay. 
See the broken hearted everywhere Always there Always there It doesn't really matter if we care They'll still be there Always there Everybody said what's been will be But there's another voice inside of me Who will say no, who will say no To the way it's always been What everyone knows, what we've been told It will never end Scream at the sky, no need to try Such a shame Walk right off and leave them in their pain It's such a shame That's such a shame Everybody said what's been will be But then, hold on and We all question God Why must this be? But there's another question God is asking me Will you say no, will you say no To the way it's always been Well everyone knows what we've been told The world just spins Scream at the sky, no need to try Because it will never end But everyone knows Everyone knows what we've been told Who will say no? Who will say no? We live in a world When we go to save this online um, I can't wait for the young man's name was Anthony. I can't wait for his commentary on today. If his first day here was raw, unplugged, and gave pause, I did not. I want to say for the eighth time, I didn't come to beat us up. I came to say, please, with great awkward hesitation, let's be the church. What does the church be? What do they do? They stand at the front of the line in awkward tension and say, Father, we see this going on around us. We see, watch, we see the whole economy of the thought of the world system crumbling and then them answering, bringing answers. Everybody tracking with me? They're bringing their answers, but the answers that we have are not the answers they find because the answer we have is a God, a glory, a presence that trumps all of that. See, I don't know what we can do. We, what, what do we do? Take up an offering and send flowers? I'm not being sarcastic. Please hear me. I'm not. I'm being serious. I wrestled in talking to God, but we're a people of mercy who more than anything... See, 
what Jesus did, what we do, before we step up and say we have the answer, the church that judges themselves first does one thing before we say we have the answer. They make sure they're not part of the problem. We live 95.3% Caucasian and pretty much our congregation here reflects culture. By the way, missiologists will, be, will tell you, wherever you plant a church, if your congregation doesn't reflect sort of demographically the cultural around you, then you have become sort of isolated and cloistered. But this reflects where we live. Not bad people. Not bad people. You didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. But in a moment of uproar, when every type of value and answer is being brought to bear, can I tell you, there's nothing out there that's going to fix it. What's going to fix it is an encounter with God. And we still have to unhesitatingly and unswervingly step across cultural lines. I, just, I do the awkward calls probably more than anybody you know. I called three pastors that posted things. They're pastors of color that they're... Uh, one of them is Indian and two of them are African American they're leaders in our church and I was so moved by this I just got, found them on Facebook sent a message and said I don't have your number can I call you and I did and so we began the conversation and I said okay you're an influencer in our denomination and here's what you wrote and here's what you said you said let's talk and have a conversation but then when people stop to you tell them that they're saying the wrong thing so please tell me where can we start the conversation I said, worse than that, I said, you guys really wrote some powerful things that called everybody to account. And then because a, be careful, Tom, because a, because a particular leader in church wrote this statement, oh, that's wonderful, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. I said, you sold yourself. Okay, how many know that you're saying right now, well, Pastor Tom doesn't look like you would be much at being a negotiator and starting conversations with great peace. No, I wanted to have real conversations. I wanted them to join me in what I was doing and let's examine ourselves. So you say, okay, I'm leaving now, I'm going home, what do I do? All you do is go home and say, Father, speak to me, look in my heart. This is an awkward time, it's an awkward week, it's an awkward reality. We want to retreat to political sound bites and polarized realities of the answers of the world, but that doesn't the way it works in the kingdom of God. We have to bring every, all of our wealth, all of our desire, all of our value, and we lay it at the feet of the Savior, and we say, please sift through it and hand back to me anything that might be of any value. Okay, so that's what we do. So this will be great, come back next week. Hopefully we will recover church as usual and hopefully we won't all leave here feeling awkward. But today I don't mind that. Today I want us to feel the pain. Last, I have pages stuff. Let me say please one more thing. Wow, I'm just gonna turn up the awkward heat here badly. For 20 years I've taught an executive leadership to pastors the art of, of, of the, excuse me, the, the pathway of conflict resolution and reconciliation and I often ask them the question I'll start with this off the wall because I believe it's Philippians 2 is the crux of it and I'll start with this question did Jesus in coming to the planet emptying himself of equality with God that's all Philippians 2 is there anything that after his journey here his life and death is there any way he benefited from it personally they don't like wrestling with that because well 
And then they start giving these answers that are sort of poetic. I said, here's the thing. If the person who demands worship from us in any way benefits from it, we should be suspicious as to why he requires it. But see, we have a holy God who doesn't need my worship, doesn't need my song. He is holy. He's complete, lacking nothing. When he invites me to worship, it is everything. It will affect my worth, not his. God doesn't feel better after I worship him. He's not somehow thinking, man, Tom, I'm glad you sang that song because now I'm feeling more godlike. I'm more godish, way more than I was before you started singing. That's not what it's about. And we're confused in that. It touches us. It makes us. It calls us to that. But here's the deal. The all-powerful God came to the sinner's who had no power to change their circumstances, he stepped in and he was touched by the feelings of our firmity. So here's one thing I will pray for all of us to do. This week, somehow, Father, here comes the prayer, may you give us the ability to be touched by the pain and reality of a person whose skin is a different color, whose life is very different than mine. I want to be incarnational. So for first and foremost, give me the ability to be touched by that pain. I stopped my world, pushed aside, shook my head because there were so many points of identity having been a cop for four years, having been in situations like that, having been in places where I did get in fights. But the one that I loved the most was the day I got in a fight with another cop for doing like what you saw there. It was awkward. Okay, I'm going to just stop came to a good point. Father, I want us to be touched by the pain. We are, we are those who live like you did in incarnation. You came and you were first touched by the feelings of our infirmities when you put on flesh. May we reach across redemptively and ask ourselves right here. We don't live in Minneapolis. We don't live there. We don't live in an urban setting. We didn't do this. But Father, somehow, some way, may we be touched by the pain of those around us so that we can reach redemptively and offer the answer. May we examine ourselves, our own hearts first. May we not be quick to retreat uh, to sociological or political rhetoric, Father, because we are first members of the kingdom and judgment begins in the house of the Lord. May that be our portion this week. I love you and I praise you. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.